Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Trumpty Dumpty wanted a crown. Trumpty Dumpty wanted a crown to make certain he never would have to step down. He wanted a robe made of ermine and velvet. The Constitution, he wanted to shelve it. With impeachment awash, his ambition had grown. He wanted an orb, a scepter, a throne, six royal palaces, six royal carriages, a church dispensation for six royal marriages, courtiers installed on his own Supreme Court, and royal beheadings, if only for sport. He craved the occasional royal procession and gasp. The eventual royal succession. Trumpty Dumpty gets his way. Unless the public has something to say. If we let him have all of his favorite things, we'll have to endure the divine right of kings. Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's virtual program at the Commonwealth Club of California. My name is Lenny Mendoza. I'm a senior partner emeritus of McKinsey and Company and a member of the Commonwealth Club's board of directors. Today, I'll be moderating the program. We'd like to thank our members, donors, and supporters for making this and all our other programs available. We're grateful for your support and hope others will follow their example to support the club, particularly during these uncertain times. Today, I'm particularly pleased to be joined by John Lithgow, an award-winning actor and author of a new book, Trumpty Dumpty Wanted a Crown Versus for a Despotic Age. He's best known, as I'm sure you all know, for his contributions in theater, television, and film industries throughout the years, with roles in things as varied as The Crown, Bombshell, and my personal favorite, The World According to Garp. After receiving degrees in history and literature from Harvard, John went on to study the performing arts at the London Academy of Music and Dramatic Art on a Fulbright scholarship. From there, he went on to become a notable award-winning actor with two Tonys, two Golden Globes, and six Emmys under his belt. In recent years, John has taken a public stance on political commentary and is known for his critiques of the Trump administration through satirical art. Trumpty Dumpty Wanted a Crown uses the traditional children's rhyme to criticize presidential decisions made in the last year and covers recent events such as Trump's impeachment, the COVID-19 pandemic, the Black Lives Matters protests, and much more. We'll be discussing a lot in the next hour, and I want to ask your questions as well. So if you're watching along with us, please put your questions in the text chat on YouTube, and we'll be getting them a little bit later in the program. So thank you, John Lithgow, for joining us tonight. John Lithgow, it's a pleasure to see you. Thank you, Lenny. It's very nice to meet you. Very nice to talk to you. And uh, we're especially happy to have you right after your newest book came out and was just out this week. I had the pleasure of reading it. Also had uh, the pleasure of watching you on uh, Stephen Colbert last night. So it's nice of you to join us after the uh, Colbert show. Did I sufficiently make a fool of myself last Uh, night? Fantastic. (laughs) It's fantastic. And uh, appreciate you joining us here today and talking a little bit about the the book and doing uh, more of a chance to get a a feeling for it, including what we just saw to kick off the program with your reading of one of the poems. Um, But before we get into that, can you just 
tell us a little bit about why poetry is this, you know, we're, we all know you as an amazing actor and all kinds of wonderful things, as I mentioned earlier. Um, and this recent, uh, relatively recent, at least that we know of, of foray into poetry and art, is that, what, what, what made you do that? Well, I, I sort of backed into it. I, I certainly didn't set out to write political satire in verse. Uh, I've always written verse, uh, uh, just occasional verse. I, I've written funny poems that include everybody's name in the cast of a play on closing night. I, I've written. I've actually done two commencement speeches at private schools with small graduating classes, in which I used the names of every single one of the graduates in an, in doggerel poems, <laughs> completely to their surprise. Uh, you know, finding out all and talking to the dean of their school about all the scandals they've been involved in within the last couple of weeks, little things like that. Uh, and then around about the late 1990s, I had been doing a lot of entertaining of children, uh, concerts with orchestras. In fact, I've even performed with the San Francisco Symphony uh, and, uh, and doing videos for kids and albums for kids. And I, I began writing verse, rhyming verse stories and picture books. And I wrote nine of them, some of them Times best-selling picture books. But in all of that, I was never serious about it. I'm still not serious about it, but I'm at least dealing with various serious subjects now. What happened was another one of these occasional poetry events. I rewrote the third verse of Gilbert and Sullivan's I Am the Very Model of a Modern Major General for New York Public Theater Gala outdoors in Central Park a couple of years ago. And it was just after Mike Flynn had been charged and apprehended and fired. Uh, he was very much in the news. And I, I sang the entire Gilbert and Sullivan Patter song in the character of Michael Flynn. And when I unlaunched, uh, unleashed my, uh, my own verse, when President Obama made me head of all things clandestine, he realized he'd brought to life a governmental Frankenstein. But then I made a killing in a case of public pillory by shouting, lock her up in my harangue opposing Hillary, etc. Well, when I told my literary agent about this, it was like it was like the sun coming up. He immediately saw a book. You know, we had gotten together to discuss, you know, you've got to write something, John. What are you going to write? Suddenly he knew exactly what I was going to write. And he said, I could sell this book tomorrow. And that was two years ago. I set off to write my first book. It's called simply Dumpty, The Age of Trump in Verse. That was such a smash hit last year, covering the first two years of Trump's administration, that my publisher, Chronicle Prism, right there in San Francisco, your pride and joy, they begged me to write another one. I said, I just can't. It's so hard thinking about all those meters and rhymes. Uh, and besides which, I'm working. I'm working a lot. I just won't have time to do it. But once again, my agent, the guy who thought of the first book, David Kuhn, a fantastic literary agent, said, you've got to do this. There's going to be an election in November. If you get this book out before that election, you can discharge your political duties. 
And he was absolutely right. So I said yes, and I thought, oh my God, I'm never going to be able to do this. Along comes, to all of our grief, the pandemic and sheltering in place and lockdown with nothing to do, except I had something to do. That's when I wrote all those poems. And I had these extraordinary subjects. I had impeachment, the coronavirus pandemic, uh, Trump's incredibly inept handling of all that, and then the, the Black Lives Matter movement. I was even, you know, that was just about at my deadline, but I even got to address that. Why verse? I don't know. I, I'm not, you don't come to me for political punditry. You come to me for entertainment. That's what you expect. And so I thought, you know, what better use of my entertainment skills than to skewer this man and to express my own anger and rage and, and pessimism and fear through lighthearted and very funny, witty poems. Inevitably, they became, with, just as it happened with the first book, the poems get more savage as the book goes along because, you know, you're dealing with some very, very dark subjects. But there's something fascinating about that. I love dealing with dark subjects in a lighthearted manner. I mean, the irony of that, something Bertolt Brecht knew all about. And Thomas Nast and Jonathan Swift, uh, great satirists. So I'm not a great satirist. I'm a, a total beginner at this. But it has struck a chord, and I'm just delighted. That's fantastic. And talk a little bit about the illustrations as well. Uh -huh. They're definitely enliven, at least mm -hmm. my reading of it, um, to get a sense of kind of visually what you're talking about. What's yeah. that? Well, just the same as I have, don't really consider myself a, a professional poet. Uh, or a professional humorist. I'm not a professional illustrator either. But my original ambition was to be an artist. I grew up in a theater family. I had no intention of being an actor. I didn't want to go into the family business. Besides, from as long as I can remember, I have had a certain facility with art. I used, at age seven and eight years old, if people asked me what I wanted to be when I grew up, grew up it was an artist. And I was very serious about it. But being in a theater family, by osmosis, I was becoming a very experienced actor. I, I acted in, my, my father produced Shakespeare festivals. And I appeared in about 20 Shakespeare plays by the time I was 20 years old and arrived at college as a fully formed actor and became a campus star. And that was that. I mean, if you if you get a big enough response as an actor, you're doomed. You're not going to do anything else with your life. <laughs> so Wonderful. And but, you know, uh, the, uh, the wonderful thing about doing the poems is I would imagine the illustrations even as I wrote them. Okay. Uh, you know, we, by the time we finish, I will, I'll, I'll be reciting a poem, Joe McCarthy's Lullaby. And I knew exactly the drawing I was going to make of that. Joe McCarthy, you know, coddling uh, a little baby Donald Trump in his lap in a rocking chair, wailing away. 
it's wonderful to find a visual joke to go along with a verbal joke. That's great. Now, as you said, you're doing this, have been doing this under a pretty dark time and it's a serious topic and um, you throw COVID on top of it and you've got people who are feeling, you know, in many cases, not very happy about the world. Um, is this cathartic for you? Does this feel part of your own release for dealing with these times or how, how, is this just work or what is it for that's you? A, that's a very good question, Lenny. Uh, I'm not sure that catharsis is exactly the word, but I, it's pretty close. There is a certain elation to, well, it's the creative process. I can look at something like that little video. I remember the moment when I thought of every single one of those rhymes. And, and you think of it as a kind of mini orgasm. <laughs> That's a fairly rude way of describing it, but it's like, oh, yes. Uh, and it's very, very hard work. It's dogged drudgery because you sit, I sit in complete silence. I can't be just, you know, if a, if a, pickup truck backs up and makes that little beep, beep, beep sound three blocks away, I go in a, into a fit. <laughs> you know, you have to go into this trance-like state, which is why it's, uh, why I was hesitant to do it again. It's just too darn hard. But boy, when you think of the last line of the last stanza of a poem, it's just, an ex well, it's cathartic. Sure enough. And also, I, I mean, the poems are very savage. I, I, you know, I really take a few people completely to pieces, uh, like Eric Prince, John McEntee, uh, Elaine Chow, people who really deserve it. But I myself am not the kind of person who would get on uh, MSNBC and hold forth with my own anger and wrath, like Steve Schmidt. Uh, a man whom I just absolutely love listening to, but I, I couldn't do that. But I can be very perverse and subversive and get at them in my own way, which is with satire. Now, you've had a chance to both do readings of your poems and have fellow actors and actresses and friends read them as well. What, what is, how did that come about for others <laughs> engaging with it? And what's that feel like? Oh, I was just so thrilled with that. You know, because it was COVID, you couldn't do a proper book tour. When I was releasing the first book, Dumpty, just a year ago, I was right there in San Francisco at your City Arts uh, lecture, being interviewed by Calvin Trillin for an audience of a thousand people. Maybe some of your listeners were there in the audience, having a fantastic time and doing book readings and book signings everywhere. Uh, I went to three different cities. All of that was out this time. Uh, we arranged things like this, a lot of virtual interviews and appearances. So a couple of months ago, I thought, wait a minute, let's get creative about this. Why don't I, because I was being asked to do all sorts of things, just talking into my iPhone and, and texting it to someone or putting it on Dropbox, I, I made a little list of my favorite people and favorite actors. And I mixed in some politicians and politicos and journalists and even an epidemiologist. And I asked them if they would be willing to simply record themselves in their home, reading one of my, or a few of my poems. 
And I got in touch with a fabulous director and very good friend of mine, Tim Van Patten. We were working on Perry Mason at the time. And I said, what about this, uh, Tim? What about making videos of my poems as a way of selling the book? And he said, yes, immediately. He was a big Thomas Nast fan and he loved what I was doing. So I contacted my pals. They all said yes. Uh, and this is Meryl Streep, Annette Benning, Alan Alda, Glenn Close, Whoopi Goldberg, Sam Jackson, Joseph Gordon-Levitt, on and on and on. And mixing in Steve Schmidt, James Carville, uh, Laurie Garrett, that's the epidemiologist. Uh, and they did a wonderful job uh, Tim works with these three delightful young men who have a company called uh, Triptych Studios, and they spun it all together. We've now released eight, eight of them. We've created our own YouTube channel. It went up just the beginning of this week. Uh, eight of them have already been posted, but there will be another 15, 16 of them right up until Election Eve. So that's how I... <laughs> And you see, they use make use of my illustrations. They've managed to illustrate, to animate them. Well, you saw it in that first yeah. one, in that very simple way. Uh, it's just completely marvelous. I've never done anything like that. But you just have to get creative. Yep. Well, that's a wonderful way to bring something to life when you can't have everybody around the listening in person. And, yeah. and you said it's on YouTube. So how can people... Uh, get access uh, you, you get on YouTube channel and uh, YouTube and look up our YouTube channel, which is called the Trumpy Dumpty Cycle. Okay, and there they are. Uh, they'll accumulate. We're we're rolling them out one after another. So at this point, you can see eight of them. Okay, great. Look forward to watching okay. those. Um, have you gotten any reaction from the the negative reaction or just? ribbing from um, the right from the administration at all i there have probably been some uh, uh cr very critical things thrown up on the uh, on the internet but i don't see them in any of the comment sections and i don't look for them anyway uh i'm an actor and most actors are scared to death and bad reviews no matter who they come from but secretly i think everybody was hoping we would get trump's goat and elicit a couple of tweets from him right. Hasn't happened yet, but God, he's doing everything else. He's a total lunatic these days, so I'm ready. Did you watch the debate? Yes, I did. Unbelievable. Uh, unbelievable spectacle. Who would have dreamed that our politics would be so debased? Yeah. The only thing that kind of thrilled me about it, not while it was happening. While it was happening, I wanted to vomit. Uh, but as soon as it was over, and I saw all the commentary, which was completely appalled by Donald Trump, I began to feel a certain elation, as if we just watched him politically immolate himself. I mean, you look for all these signs. We've been doing that for three or four years now, thinking, ah, he's done it now. There's no way he can recover from this. And we've always been wrong. But I, I don't know. I, I, I remain optimistic. Okay, good. Well, and he's, he, it's almost as if he's doing our work for us. Well, he's certainly giving you a lot of material for yeah. for next poems. Not just that, but, you know, way back in December and January of last year, when, when we were deciding, talking about what this book should be and how should it be different from the last one, I said, you know, 
this is bad. This book has got to be really tough and really dark. He's now behaving like a king. And why don't I make up a, an opening poem, Trumpty Dumpty Wanted a Crown, and make that the title of the book? Well, look how prescient that was. I mean, not to congratulate myself, but that's exactly how he's operating more now than ever. Uh, and, and, you know, I wrote that lighthearted poem back in January. It's taken on such dark meetings, meanings when I say, uh, for example, courtiers installed in his own Supreme Court and royal beheadings, if only for sport. That's a much, a much better line now than it was, yeah. you know, eight months ago. Well, um, we, uh, I think you also, about time you were going to read another poem for us. Aha. Uh -huh. Can you remember which poem I was going to read? Fake news. Fake oh, news. yes, fake news. This, uh, I urge you all to go to the, um, to the uh, YouTube channel I was talking about because I have this, I'll read it all right, but I won't read it as well as my friends, Whippy Goldberg and Sam Jackson. They're, they're just completely wonderful. Um, it's taking me a moment. I'm not sure where it is in my own book. You see, this is where, this is, this is explains why my career has faltered. Let's see now, fake news, fake news. Yes, it's one of the first, page 15. And I'll show you the, the illustration for it just for the fun yes, of it. Oh, you've got the illustration. Yes. That's our clever little tech people. <laughs> Nick by name. It's called Fake News. And this, by the way, is Herodotus. Trump as Herodotus on his pedestal. People say that heretofore I kept black tenants from my door using legal, legal trickery, but fake news doesn't bother me. They say that falsifying facts is how I skirted all my taxes. People call it larceny, but fake news doesn't bother me. Constantly, I'm found at fault, charged with sexual assault, harassment, and adultery, but fake news doesn't bother me. Starving students, people say, had their futures ripped away by Dumpty University, but fake news doesn't bother me. They smear me with the vilest things like payoffs for my casual flings from the campaign treasury, but fake news doesn't bother me. People say I monetize all my presidential ties, boosting my prosperity, but fake news doesn't bother me. They say my meddling in Ukraine left an ignominious stain tantamount to treachery, but fake news doesn't bother me. They say in days coronal viral, I propelled our downward spiral through my imbecility, but fake news doesn't bother me. Notwithstanding crimes like these, I'll continue as I please. Fake news doesn't bother me. I'll just rewrite history. That's fantastic. We have a if we had a live audience, there'd be a lot of applause going on. We can see it virtually. Right. Yeah, that's, uh, that's very fun. Very fun. Yeah. Um, and prescient as well. You know, did you had you seen his income taxes? Uh, the, oh, <laughs> no.
that's, that's what I mean. Now, uh, I wrote that early on, uh, in, again, in January. It was one of the first ones I wrote. Coronavirus had never even been heard of, but I was able to stick that last stanza in when coronavirus hit, hit about days coronaviral. By the way, it was a wonderful event that I can tell you about. I'd written three or four of these poems, one about Roger Stone, one about fake news, of course. There was one about, called Twinkle, Twinkle, Kenneth Star about all the defense team uh, in the impeachment trial. And I was invited by Senator Debbie Stabenow from Michigan to be the after-dinner entertainment at a retreat of the Democratic Senate caucus in Baltimore in the Johns Hopkins Rare Books Library. And I flew to Baltimore and I read my first four poems from this book. It was the first time I had ever read them aloud for anybody. And I was reading them to United States Democratic senators. <laughs> and they laughed and applauded. They gave me a standing ovation. It was just one of those, for me personally, it was just a historic night. That's fantastic. Well, that would have been great after dinner entertainment. Yeah. Unfortunately, we didn't have Kamala or Diane Feinstein, so we di I didn't have the California contingent. Uh, that, that's okay. I'm sure they'll they'll look up the book in the meantime and look on well, the YouTube channel. No, no, I've I've already sent the book to all my Democratic friends in the Senate. Senate. <laughs> Great. Uh, so, in in the course of writing this, I mean, obviously, there's a lot going on in every day in the news and uh, the president doing something else. But what what prompts you to that, that this is something I want to write about, or here's something that, that gave me an idea. Is it just pick up the paper or turn on the TV or look at Twitter and find something? Or how do you decide what you want to write about? Well, it, it's things become very self-evident. Uh, I do remember with both books, I sat down and wrote a kind of a database of 40 great subjects or great characters. These, these characters are simply amazing. I, I mean, as an actor, you'll go through life looking at people who <laughs> they behave so crazy. It's always very liberating. As a character actor, I always feel, what a relief. There's no way anybody can tell me I'm overdoing it. <laughs> you know, these people are nuts. And they're fantastic subjects for comedy. When, when they hired John McEntee to be the head of hiring and firing in the White House personnel office at age 29, this, this young jerk who hadn't done anything. It's like a perfect subject for a poem. Uh, and, and of course, any, any number of the others. I would dig deep into my research. I would just learn everything I could about someone like uh, Seculo or uh, uh, Elaine Chow and collect all this stuff, a lot of it that people has escaped pe people's notice or they've forgotten about it. And I would weave all those little factoids into the text of the poems. An interesting thing happened, which I describe in the introduction to the book. When my first book came out, it, many of the people I'd written about, their moment had come eight, nine, 10 months before. Early, people early in the Trump administration, Tom Price, Scott Pruitt, Harold Bornstein, Ronnie Jackson, 
Antony Scaramucci. Those were the subjects of the poems in the first book. But the early on poems, I would, people's response would be, my God, I forgot all about those people. And I began to realize, well, that's what I'm doing with these books. I'm writing an odd, offbeat kind of history, but it is a history book. And history books are there to remind you about what happened. You may have forgotten this, but it was important. And in my mind, it's even more memorable if it's, to, if it's told in rhyme. Yeah. And, something and, about, <laughs> there's something about rhymes hitting right. at the end of a, of a sentence in perfect meter that just a little firecracker goes off in your brain when you read that, that rhyme and you just remember. Oh, I did an entire mono rhyme in the first book, which means every single line uh, ends with the same rhyme. And it was on the subject of uh, Scott Pruitt. And everything rhymed with Pruitt, but you didn't hear the word till the very last line. <laughs> well, you don't forget Scott Pruitt after that. No. I, I will say, as I was reading her book in the introduction and then read the book, it did remind me about if this were a film, you would say there's too many characters in this. That right. you, you, you know, yeah. That was just three months ago, and I've already forgotten since there's been 15 yeah. new news cycles on a new character. I know. And it all happened like, why, where? Oh, slow, slow down, slow down. I can't handle all of this, which, of course, is what everybody is feeling in this administration. So, and, and somehow or other, these two books, volume one and volume two, God help me, I hope there will not be a volume three. Just putting all these stories together, all these people together, just compacting them into two 120-page books of poems, it has an incredible impact. Just how grotesquely bad this presidency was and this administration. I mean, you cannot, maybe you can name uh, a couple of people who are long gone and who probably left with their heads held high and it was their decision to leave, people like Jim Mattis. But you can't name any other fine people uh, or there may have been fine people, but they were stained by the experience of being in this administration. And there's only four people who have truly lasted from day one. Trump, Jared Kushner, Ivanka Trump, and that little creep, Stephen Miller. They're the only ones who are still around. And how grotesque is it that those are the people who are basically running our country? Yeah. Yeah. So um, what, what are you, as you're uh, out having these virtual conversations, what do you like to have people take away from, as a, in addition to obviously reading the book and reacting to it? What do you want them to feel after... After this. You ask such great questions, Lenny. I, you know, I, I uh, the entertainer in me wants them to be delighted. It wants them to have a wonderful time. Uh, ironically enough, a wonderful time contemplating a really terrible time. Um, there are all sorts. I, I feel ambivalent in many ways about the whole process because I know I'm preaching to the converted. I know that uh, the only people who are enjoying this book are people who agree with me and who are saying, oh yes, thank God you've written this. The people who don't agree with me, they hate this book. 
if they know about it at all. I don't expect they do. I always say, I hope to sell lots of copies to liberals, but lots of copies to Trump's people too, because they'll only want to burn it. But if they're going to burn it, they have to buy it first. <laughs> now, that would be a laugh line if we were in, uh, if this was a city arts lecture last year. <laughs> But it would be a very dark laugh, and those are the best kinds. <laughs> um, so, you know, you um, are you worried at all about? I'm going to ask you a couple serious questions about. Sure. Um, you know, we, we're doing this kind of discussion, and you you're doing other ones like it to help uh, engage an audience when you can't do performing arts. You can't have a live audience. Are you worried about what's going to happen to the to the arts and during? Uh, we're obviously in in a respite now. Oh, but how do you feel oh. about it in terms of what's what's going to come out of this? Well, I'm deeply worried, of course, and it's been a, a economic catastrophe for most artists. Uh, I don't think I know any actor who's acted has been paid to act for the net last 10 months. I go back to work in, in two weeks on a TV series that was suspended last February. And I'm one of the very, very lucky actors. Uh, it's been a catastrophe. Uh, again, the optimist in me says, well, it may take a long time, but the arts will be back. People are desperate for them. You know, they're desperate to, to somehow or other grapple with this experience on an emotional level through the arts. Uh, but it's very hard because you can't convey the arts without, without being with people, without connecting with people and communicating with people. The, the saddest part about this whole experience has been how lonely we all are. We're just not used to, be, to being so isolated. Uh, thank God I have a, a, a wife who's, I would rather be with her than anybody else. So in fact, sheltering in place has been a, a very, very sweet experience, a rare experience, but it's been very melancholy. And of course, the news is so disturbing every day. Uh, it, we will recover from this. My own grandfather passed away when my dad was four years old in the Spanish flu epidemic in uh, 19, 19, 1918. And uh, it's during the depths of that epidemic, it must have felt like the world was coming to an end, but we did recover from it and we will recover from this. But it's, you know, it's hard to hang on to that hope. And the awful thing is th this terrible political anxiety that sort of sickens us at the same time. It's really, really a tough thing to live through, but we're all living through it together. When I was growing up, my parents' generation, they would all tell their rueful, funny stories about the Depression and starving in New York, being starving actors in New York. My dad was a New York actor in the late 1930s, just never worked. Uh, in fact, my mother was a waitress at Stouffer's on Fifth Avenue, which was a great job. And because of that, they fed everybody in their little apartment in the village. And they tell those stories as if it was the most exciting time of their lives. So maybe we'll look back on this and tell people how we survived. 
hope, hope so. I'm sure we will in one yeah, way or we're, another. We're all hopeful people. So how are you able to do uh, restarting your acting in a couple of weeks, given the environment we're in? How has that uh, been enabled? Well, I guess, uh, I mean, things are slowly coming to life in the film industry in L.A. Uh, they're taking us through all sorts of protocols, a lot of which I'm not even aware of yet. I haven't been through it. Um, but I, I don't know. I've been, I've been going to recording studios. Uh, with, with there only, there's only maybe one or maybe two people there, and we're all very careful. Uh, to do little odds and ends of jobs. I don't know. Somehow we'll just sort of creep back into the into into action, just the way sports have. Right. But it's it's very halting. They keep canceling football games and basketball games and entire uh, conference seasons uh, just because of two or three infections. So I don't know. It's going to be a little tough. I I. Do hope you're right, and I certainly feel like that there is a pent-up interest in yeah. um, people wanting to both get out personally, but if they can't get out, at least engage and watch yeah. and enjoy yeah. uh, something that takes their mind away from the day-to-day. -day. So I yeah. would assume as soon as you're able to start producing again and filming and acting that yeah. there'll be a, an audience just thirsting for it. Yeah. Yeah, because then we're not seeing anything new and anything that's been produced in the last eight eight months. Right. So in addition to being able to spend more time with your wife than you might have expected, how are you keeping yourself sane besides writing poetry? Well, uh, it's that's been a big part of it. I wrote a book. I illustrated a book. And then I co-produced these 21 videos, something I've never done in my life. I've been reading novels as I haven't given myself the chance to do in a long time. Um, but mainly it's been, it's been the book and that's been pretty special. I, I've had a wonderful time with this one. That's great. Lenny, let me ask you a question. Yes. I, I am sitting in my wife's studio that has wonderful light until the sun goes down. Am I very, very dark? No. Should I go, no. should I go and turn some lights on? You're, you're fine. Okay. See you All right. <laughs> it's getting kind of gloomy. And I've been, it strikes me, I've started talking about some very dark things. Well, well let's, let's uh, give you a chance to uh, lighten this up a little bit, or at least change that tone a little bit. And if you want to turn on lights, you can, but we're, you're fine. So I think we have another video to watch. Um, oh, I'll turn the lights on while you show the video. Okay, it's a recipe <laughs> for disaster. I think we're oh, great. about ready to go. So we'll cue that up. Recipe for disaster. Try a viral new cuisine, COVID-19. Offer it to each civilian, 300 million. It's quick and easy to prepare, microbial fare. First preheat an anxious nation with misinformation. Take what other leaders tried and set aside. Place the 50 sovereign states on separate plates. Sow confusion and distrust. Make your crust. Insist on sycophantic praise. Whip the glaze. Stir the pot for all to see on live TV. Add DeSantis, simmer low. Cuomo, no. Pound Jay Inslee, call him Snake, then pre-bake. Claim it's Gretchen Whitmer's fault. 
pinch of salt. If the kitchen is a mess, slam the press. If the pastry comes unstuck, pass the buck. Our supplies arriving late, blame the state. Suck all science-based advice puree twice. If the stock exchange careens, boil your greens. For a dash of ignorance, add Mike Pence. Use your clueless son-in-law for the slaw. Slash the funds for WHO. Need the dough. Add some spice to this fiasco with Tabasco. Once you learn how it can kill, throw in dough. When a hundred thousand die, bake your pie. When at last the horror's done, claim you won. Takes no time at all to master. National disaster. That is fantastic. How about that? <laughs> I love that. I mean, the poem was terrific. The illustrations were yeah. fantastic. And having that array of voices be able to oh. bring it to life must yeah. have been uh, really fulfilling. Yeah. And just to make sure I give everybody credit, that was Whippy Goldberg, Sam Jackson, Joseph Gordon-Levitt, Steve Buscemi, uh, Wayne Knight, and Stephen Root, and Kristen Chenoweth, and Margaret Cho. What a gang. Huh? And you had James Carville in the mix, I saw. And James Carville. Yeah. And, and that was Laurie Garrett, one of yep. the world's great epidemiologists. Yep. Yeah. And was that? And John, John and Senator John Tester, yep. who became my great friend that night in, in Baltimore that I just told you about. I can imagine <laughs> that would be a fun conversation. So it was I, great. That, uh, again, uh, from at least my view of that, and I remember reading that before knowing you were going to do it as part of this discussion. That was one of my favorite ones. It's a very challenging topic, obviously, but yeah, yeah. written in a way that that reminds you of what happened to this entire disaster that we're talking about and how much yeah. the lack of response at, at the leadership level is, is responsible, or at least in part for how bad it is. So it was yeah. very well done. That, I saw that as an allegory along the lines of Nero fiddling while Rome burned. And yeah, that is by far the, the darkest and toughest poem. But we were talking about the coronavirus. And at that, when I wrote it, there were only about 80,000 people dead. Oh. And now there's more than 200,000. And, yeah. uh, and it, our president talks about it as if it hasn't even happened now, or as if it's all over. It's far from over. Okay. Yeah. Um, so... Uh, as you were working through this book during this time, um, a lot of events had occurred, have occurred in the, in um, the forefront of our minds as this president has uh, continued to be in the, in uh, the media about what's happening. Are there things that you wrote about or things that you considered writing about that you think people didn't pay as much or have not paid as much attention to that you can bring some light to? You mentioned, Elaine Chow is one example. Yeah. There are things that, you know, we all know about COVID, but are there, there are some of the poems in there that to me were illustrating through the way you described it, both verse and and art of something that yeah. people may not know as much about or remember as much. Well, certainly I, I, I wrote about Jim Jordan, the Ohio congressman and his, you know, the, the uh, charges against him of 
countenancing sexual harassment. I wrote about Eric Prince and his special ops. A lot of them are poems that we did not do videos about because they're just, they really are grim. John McEntee was an easy one to, to tease. I was astonished when I did the research on Elaine Chow. This sort of very sweet, apparently sweet woman who is truly one of the most corrupt figures in the Trump administration. And, and, and there's a whole long poem. I call it, uh, A Pandemic's a Terrible Thing to Waste, about how uh, Trump has managed to fire five inspectors general. Mm -hmm. And I, I do a little stanza on each one of them, you know, Mitch Bem and Christy Grimm, and uh, I can't remember their names now, which is the whole point. Steve Linick at State. It was appalling how methodically Barr and Trump have gone about defanging the entire inspector general process. And it's quite specifically to make sure that Trump and Barr are not implicated in anything. Uh, that, that's the kind of thing that sneaks under the radar. Yeah. And the whole idea of a pandemics and a terrible thing to waste is when there's a terrible crisis like that, things happen late on Friday night at the very nadir of the news cycle. You have to pay attention to what this administration does on Friday nights because it is so extra legal and, and they so count on people not quite noticing it. So there again, you Great. can learn a lot from that poem because it's all true. I, I, the, the, interest, the, the, the thing we chose to do quite early on, they are the poems and they are outrageous because the behavior is outrageous and the people are outrageous, but they are accompanied by completely factual, completely deadpan little reminders what the actual facts of the matter are because these poems are all based on the truth. Right, right. So... Um... You, as uh, I'm sure our viewers know, had uh, one of your more recent films was to play Roger Ailes in Bombshell. Mm -hmm. um, how, how did that compare in terms of trying to get into that character with trying to communicate through poetry? And um, you know, what was it like to play someone that that bigger than life? That was a wonderful experience. Uh, very, very complex man. I, I, I mean. You know, every time I play a villain, and I've played just as many villains as I have uh, heroes and fools, I always say my stock and trade are scoundrels and fools. Well, the scoundrels, when you play a, a villain, it's fascinating to really, really work on finding out is what is redemptive about that person or what is remorseful about that person. Uh, and uh, that's how I approached Roger Ailes, a man who, who sort of had his compulsions, but surely he wishes he didn't and got no satisfaction from them. And in a way is a very pitiable creature. I, I took the, the, the ingenious move, if I say so myself, I tracked down an old friend of mine who had been Roger Ailes producing partner in the 1970s when Ailes was trying his hand at theater producing in New York. In fact, he produced the first hit production of Lanford Wilson's Hot L Baltimore, a 
amazing fact, Roger Ailes. And my friend Steve Rosenfeld, who was his producing partner, described him. He said he was very upset. He he was very appalled by his Ailes' behavior late in life. But he found it very upsetting that nobody was telling the story of what great company he was, what a great sense of humor he had, how he could make you laugh for 40 seconds straight. You know, these very interesting, a completely different Roger Ailes than the conventional wisdom. I found it much, much more interesting playing the part once I, once I tracked Steve down and heard all those stories. Well, you uh, certainly brought him to life very effectively. Very much enjoyed that. When they do a movie about, which I'm sure there'll be a dozen of them or more, the Trump administration, uh, which character would you want to be? <laughs> I'm afraid... Uh, I, this guy, Caputo, who just emerged for a moment and is now gone forever, that's the part for me. <laughs> I even look like him. And he is, uh, I, I mean, these people are so insane. Uh, but there are several. <laughs> there are several. All the sort of uh, fat, bald, white men of, of uh, uh, over 70 years old, th- they're, already, they're already looking for me to play those parts. <laughs> Actually, I've already been asked to play Donald Trump a, a couple of times, but it's just too damn soon for me. <laughs> <laughs> I did play him. We did a live streaming of the Mueller report last last June. Yep. It was fascinating. It was a fascinating experience with a whole bunch of, kind of like the way I assembled the cast for my book. They just put us all together on YouTube and we... We played out all those scenes because a lot of the second half of the Mueller report is, in fact, written in dialogue. <laughs> so can you t- t- describe a little bit more the videos that go along with the this book? Um, can t- How did that really, I mean, people just were their friends in their homes recording yes. like we're doing they now, were, and then they pierced they together? Were in their, they were in their homes. I had the, the fun opportunity to, I created a little grid. I I picked 21 poems that I thought would be really playable. And I asked people, most people read three or four poems. And there's a big section of limericks, you will remember. I doled them out to absolutely everybody. So, and they all read the entire poem. And then these wonderful guys, they they cut them together so that like in the case of fake news, the video you just saw, you see the whole ensemble taking turns. I see. Okay. Uh, and we had great fun. And then and I got involved late. They would edit it, and then I would revisit it and say, you know, what would work much better is put, put Buscemi down here and Edie Falco up here. Uh, and I injected myself. I deliberately had kept my distance and wanted to open it and close it. But then I decided, no, they need me here on this one, <laughs> you know, <laughs> because I didn't want to read them again. I didn't want to ask them to, to do it again. They were already, I'll tell you a wonderful little side note. We got permission from SAG after our union for all these people to perform and for it to air on television and use it as a clip as we've done tonight. They all agreed, all the actors agreed, but we had to make sure that the union approved it. And they did on condition that we pay each of them a nominal fee. 
and that nominal fee was fifteen dollars. <laughs> so <laughs> I just love the fact that I've I've paid. Glenn Close and Sam Jackson and <laughs> Meryl Streep, $15 a pop. Uh, Alan Alda, I said, spend it wisely. <laughs> I'm sure they needed the work and were grateful for the $15. So, But it looks like they were having fun doing it. it looks like. Oh, they all had a wonderful time. They were really delighted. And they all did it completely on their own. I wasn't there to, to say, do, do it faster or do it funnier. They just, they all did a great job. And if they didn't, we just would substitute somebody else in for that little particular stanza. Well, we look forward to going to the YouTube channel to to watch those here shortly. So we're... And now, you know, James Carville can say he's acted with Meryl Streep. <laughs> <laughs> right. There we go. There we go. So can you talk? We're getting close to the end here, and I make sure I ask some of the questions that came in. So can you talk at all about what, what you have upcoming um, you mentioned a series. Yeah, Is that can you talk about? Actually, tomorrow morning I start a really interesting project for Audible. I'm doing a radio play that was commissioned by Audible, or, or in any case, written as a radio play by James Patterson. A kind of murder mystery five episode uh, radio play. Now. I think that's one of the products of the pandemic is right. bringing just sound back uh, things for simply people to simply listen to because you can record something solo in a recording studio in a way you can't perform it with other people. That's one thing. And the other thing is I'm resuming the, the series that I'm resuming is this kind of international spy uh, series with uh, Jeff Bridges called the old man. Okay. And we're two old ex-CIA special agents who did something 30 years ago during the Soviet era in Afghanistan that was way out of bounds, uh, well-intentioned, but we broke a lot of rules. And that event has come back to haunt us in the present day. And really kind of cool. And I would get to work with Jane, with Jeff, whom I've never worked with before. That's great. We were, we were supposed to go to Morocco just as the coronavirus uh, hit. Now we're, we're doing scenes set in Morocco, but we're doing them in Southern California. <laughs> so God knows how that's going to work. Okay. But and it's where, nice to have, it's where, nice where, to have a job. Where, what network will that be on or where can we see it's that? It's FX. Okay. It's an FX series. Great. Um, well, we're just about at the, the end of the time here and, and wanted to just ask you a closing question and then ask you to read a, a final poem. So, um, you know, as you would expect in an audience like the Commonwealth Club, you've got a, a group of people who are both big fans of you, excited to read the book, and also serious about the topics that you're addressing through your poetry and through your art. So uh, if you have any closing advice for people in this time that we're in, as you know, that they have had a chance to read and listen to you and, and want to be part of uh, ensuring that we have a terrific country going forward, what, what would you encourage people? Well, vote, of course. I think it's incredibly important that there be a landslide electoral victory for, for Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. Uh, and don't lose hope. Uh, I mean, there is the possibility that this nightmare continues. Uh, but we, who knew that we would ever be able to survive four years of this? I remember vividly what it felt like 
the night that Hillary Clinton lost and I felt such despair. Well, it's been, it's been really bad. And it's, and these last couple of months have been the worst of all, but we have survived and chances are things will change and things will get better and stay optimistic. And at the very least stay creative. Great. That's wonderful advice. Um, and we appreciate you staying creative and using this medium to share it with us. And I want to give you a chance to read uh, another one of your poems to close it out. And we had talked about you reading Joe McCarthy's Lullaby. Yes. And I'm not going to read it. I'm going to sing it. Oh, even better. Yeah, I, I'll show you the, uh, I think I described this, but I get to show it to you now. There's Joe McCarthy and you can see yep. baby Trump yep. mewling and puking in his arms. And that in the background, of course, is Roy M. Cohn. This is Joe McCarthy's Lullaby, a poem that I I imagined, I, I, I thought of it as I was taking a shower at about 8.30 in the morning. And by 11 a.m., I had already written the poem and done the illustration. Wow. <laughs> this was the only one that came easy. Maybe it's because it was a lullaby. And since it's nighttime and we're wrapping this up, this is my lullaby for you. Hush, little Dumpty, don't you cry. You'll be in dreamland by and by. Harken back many years ago to the time of your Uncle Joe. If you're feeling all alone, give a thought to Roy M. Cone. If you're cranky, be like me. Copy my demagoguery. Stoke the nation's tribal schism by attacking socialism. Crap on legal jurisdiction by rescinding Flynn, Flynn's conviction. If you hype the Chinese connection, you'll squeak by in the next election. If your polls are getting low, implicate Joe Scarborough. If you can win every single crucial state by invoking Obamagate, if you're badly trailing Biden, claim you know everything he's hiding. If they call you deeply flawed, keep invoking voter fraud. If coronavirus spreads, put it all on the governor's heads. If they claim you reacted slow, place the blame on the WHO. If resistance grows too large, float the bogus deep state charge. If the public feels chagrin, tout hydroxychloroquine. If at last you're voted down, you'll still be the sweetest little Dumpty in town. So hush, little Dumpty, don't you cry. You're out of office by and by, by and by, by and by. 
Oh, that's fantastic. That's Joe McCarthy's lullaby. <laughs> that is wonderful. That is wonderful. And, uh, you know, if, if we could see it, the applause would be deafening right now. So, But uh, I can think of no better way to end an evening with John Lithgow than having him read Joe McCarthy's lullaby. So thank you very much. Lenny, thank you. You do this so well. It was really a pleasure to talk to you. And again, our uh, our thanks to John Lithgow, author of the book that he was showing, which I encourage all of us, all of those who registered at the Commonwealth Club for this event will be getting a copy. And for those of you who are watching on YouTube or listening on the radio, would encourage you to get the book called Trumpty Dumpty Wanted a Crown Versus for a Despotic Age. And thank you again, John, for joining us today. We'd also like to thank our audience for watching and participating live. If you'd like to watch more programs or support the Commonwealth Club's efforts in making virtual programming, please visit commonwealthclub.org online. Again, I'm Lenny Mendonca. Thank you and stay safe, everyone. Thank you again, John. Have a great evening. Thank you, Lenny. Great job. Bye now. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support.